preach a passage, a familiar passage from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 15 verses. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And as they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him, then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Let us pray. Most gracious God, Lord, we thank you for this timeless story the story of the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Father, it is our prayer this morning that you would cause it to be afresh and new in our hearts and minds and that we would be able to see the truth that is within your story, Father. Lord, I just pray that you give me your words, and they be not of me, but be glorifying unto you for your people. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. So as... Tammy said earlier, without a doubt, this Sunday is my favorite Sunday of the year. It just holds something beautiful and is really beyond my ability to say it and put it into words. It is a very special morning. And I want to welcome everyone here this morning. I know that we have visitors with us, and I want to say that we welcome you. We are glad you are here. We have prayed for you every Sunday of the year. I get up here Sunday after Sunday, and my messages focus on the people living a Christian life. Every Sunday but this one. This Sunday is a message of salvation. This Sunday is a message of invitation to those who may be in my own congregation that do not believe or to those of you who do not believe. So this message is for you, is for you. and I do that every, every Easter Sunday, and that is my focus, and this one's no different than any of the others. And I know that you might think you've come at the behest of your mother or at the nagging of a child or for whatever reason you're here. I know why you're here. God has brought you here at this moment in time to hear his word proclaimed. And that is beyond all doubt in my mind. Now, there may be a hesitation to make eye contact with me. There may be a desire to focus in on distractions, whatever they may be. But I ask that you not, 
Maybe your mouth is watering, your belly's growling, and you're thinking about that food that you're going to take after this service. But I ask that you, you give me those, these few moments that you concentrate on God's Word as it is uh, given to you, and you listen to it, and, and you take it all in and fight that temptation not to stay engaged, but to be distracted. Your eternity may very well depend upon that. So we're going to be examining some very familiar passages this morning. And as I said this morning in sunrise service, Easter messages are different than normal messages because they focus year after year after year on basically the same text. Now, yes, you can choose from which gospel you want to read from, but it's, it's the same story and basically the same text. So you find yourself wondering, what am I going to speak about this year? You know it's the same story. What am I going to get out of it? But I'm always surprised and astonished what God pulls out of it for me. I've read the same passage, this passage, probably hundreds of times, and yet this week's reading of it and this week's studying of it pulled something out that I found was very unique and demonstrated a beautiful truth of God. And I hope that as we go through it, you'll be able to see and understand that truth as well. And the truth can be wrapped up into why unbelievers continue to reject Christ as their Savior. Why that happens. And we're going to see it play out so beautifully in this passage. And I hope that you all can see it as well. It was true at the time Matthew penned this gospel. And it's true this very day as well. So let us jump jump into these passages. Now, on the, now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone. So it's in the very early morning hours. It's actually, a lot of this happened, you can get from the other Gospels, a lot of this happened before the sun was even up. It was in the early morning hours, Sunday morning, and Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, the Mary, the mother of Salome, were coming to put spices on the body of Christ, and they were coming to the tomb. Now, you got to understand, there was a lot going through these ladies' minds at the time. They had been with this, this man, this teacher, for three years. They believed everything that he said. They didn't understand what was going on. Their minds were confused, they were sad, they had lost their friend, they they sat there and they watched him die on the cross. So no doubt in their minds they were thinking, really is he different than everybody else? Because he died, he bled, just like you and I do. Is he any different? And so I see the, the beautiful love of two women coming to care for this body or this corpse that is in the tomb. Now, the other Gospels will tell us that they were concerned, and and while they were going to the tomb, they had a conversation between the two of them about who's going to roll this huge stone away. They didn't go there thinking that the two of them would be able to roll this this stone away. They had that thought in their minds, and they they were concerned about how that was going to happen. But yet, here they came, heartbroken, scared, confused, a lot of emotions going through their minds and hearts as they approached the tomb that early Sunday morning. So they made their way to the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. 
Now, there are those out there that will say, well, I'll answer your question on how the stone got rolled away. It's clear there was an earthquake. It rolled the stone away. Look at that passage a little more carefully. And behold, there was a great earthquake. Four. Four is a big word. We could take four out and we could put because back in there. Same Greek word. We can replace the four with because. Now it changes the meaning altogether, right? There was an earthquake. Why was there an earthquake? Because an angel of the Lord was descending from the throne room of God to earth. That caused the earthquake. And the angel descended from heaven, came, and rolled back the stone. So you see the proper order of things in the way that it happened in this passage. The earthquake never rolled the stone away. The angel rolled it back, and I find it quite comical that he jumped up and sat on top of it after he rolled it away. Verse 3. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. What an amazing, awesome, and terrifying sight, all wrapped into one, this had to be. Truly amazing, truly terrifying, truly something that no one had ever seen before. Angels look like this because they have been in the very presence of God. They reflect the glory of God. That's why it's so hard for humans to be able to look upon angels without becoming terrified. Because they reflect God's glory. And as we see angels throughout the Bible, it is extremely frightening for humans to see them, to be in the same room as they are. And we see that happen here with the guards. The guards saw the angel, they were terrified, and they trembled. And the Bible says they became like dead men. Well, what does that mean? That means they passed out. Their fear and anxiety overcame them to the point that they passed out flat on the ground. Hey, Ralph, we're going to sleep this one off, so to speak. They were absolutely terrified as we see the reaction that angels have on people, on human beings. And this, as I said, is because they reflect the glory of God. You know, usually is the case when angels come in contact with humans, and I say humans, let's say believers. When they come into contact with believers, what's the first word that they say? Two words. Fear not. Fear not. Because they know what is going to happen to that person whenever they see the glory of God reflected off the angel. They're going to end up like these guards. Nothing was said to the guards, was it? Nothing was said to the guards. The angel didn't come to the guards and say, fear not. Because the guards were not believers. The guards were not believers. You remember Mary, the mother of Jesus? Same thing happened to her. First thing Gabriel said was, fear not. Zechariah also encountered the angel. The first words in the temple were, fear not. It happens over and over and over because when people come in contact with the glory of God, when sinful people come in contact with the glory of God, they are overwhelmed by His glory. It was no different in this situation. 
<clears throat> angels carry with them a reflection of God's glory. And I want you to understand that point. There is nothing inherent within an angel that is glorious. Angels reflect the glory of God because they are in his throne room. They are a moon, so to speak. You see the moon? The moon has no inherent illuminating power of itself. It merely reflects the sun toward the earth. And that's why we can see the moon. And on a full moon night, that's how it illuminates the earth. It doesn't do a very good job of it, right? But it does illuminate to a certain extent. It's the same way with these angels. They illuminate or they reflect God's glory. They don't have the glory coming out. They are merely being small satellites of God reflecting His glory. So think about how much greater the glory of God will be when you see Him face to face than one of His messengers that He, see, that he sends. You think that it brings great fear on fallen man to come in contact with an angel? I will tell you it will bring much greater fear on fallen man to come in contact with Almighty God. Because within him is the essence of all that is wonderful and all that is powerful and all that is just. Remember in Isaiah 6, Isaiah actually came into the throne room of God and he saw the Lord seated high and lifted up. And what was the first thing Isaiah did? He fell on the floor face down and said, Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. When we get into God's throne room and we see a perfectly holy God, we immediately think, we ain't that guy. Immediately, everything that is horrible within us comes to the forefront of our minds and we understand we don't belong there. That's what happened to these guards. Merely with a small confrontation with one of his messengers, not actually seeing God but the angel said to the women do not be afraid for I know that that you seek Jesus who was crucified so again didn't tell the guards anything but tells the women don't be afraid why shouldn't they be afraid because he knows their hearts right that's it take that four put because back in there and it'll tell you The angel says, do not be afraid for I know or because I know that you come because of Jesus. He knew their hearts. God had instructed the angel what was going on here and the angel knew what was in the hearts of those women just like he knew what was in the hearts of those guards when he did not say, fear not. He is not here, the angel tells the women. Just as he has told you, come and see the place where he lay. So the angel told the women that that Christ isn't there, and then he invited them to the tomb to see that he's gone, that Jesus no longer is there. Remember, the stone wasn't rolled away so that Jesus could get out. He was already gone. The resurrected body has a molecular structure that is far different than ours. And we see that afterwards when he walks through doors, he walked through that rock. The only reason that stone was moved was so everybody could witness the fact that he was raised from the dead. So the angel showed the women 
He's already, he's already gone. He has risen from the dead. Now go and you tell the disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. I have told you. Just like Jesus had told them beforehand, you're going to be with me in Galilee. So does the angel jog their memory, so to speak, to help them to understand that that is in fact the plan. That you're going to see him again in Galilee. So they departed quickly from the tomb, still scared. I mean, think of what these ladies had been through over the last week. They went from Palm Sunday and all the pomp and circumstance of ushering in this magnificent king, praising his name, to as the week unfolded in the garden on Thursday, sweating drops of blood, having the Last Supper, telling them that this was it, to Judas betraying and kissing him on the cheek, and then the guards coming to get him, Peter pulling his sword and cutting off the guard's ear, him being whisked away, going through multiple trials over a 36-hour period, put before Pilate, ordered to death on the cross, was hung on the cross, sword pierced his side, they watched him die, whisked away into a tomb, and now he's supposed to have risen from the dead the stone's gone they see an angel wow that's a lot that's a lot in a week so they departed with great joy no doubt they were very hopeful but still uncertain exactly what was going on but then something miraculous happens something else miraculous happens i should say and they get a great surprise And behold, there he was. Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and they took hold of his feet and they worshipped him. Clearly, they fell at his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said, do not be afraid again. We have a resurrected body. Would definitely cause some sort of fear to fall on mankind. Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So they get to see Jesus himself. And he greets them, again telling them to tell the rest of the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Then we get to verse 11. And verses 11 through 15 is where I want to sort of hover over this morning. Because there's a lot of eye-opening truth in these verses and while they were going behold so the ladies had gone back to tell the disciples let's go to Galilee so we can see Jesus and all that's going on so while that's happening some of the guard went to the city to tell the chief priests everything that had happened so evidently the guards is lying on the ground passed out they get revived they wake up and they think we got to tell somebody what's going on and what's happened here so they go into the city to tell them what's going on and again right now it's just the chief priests verse 12 and when they had assembled the elders and taken counsel they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers so the chief priests they're like okay we got a problem We need to assemble the entire Sanhedrin. We're going to assemble the entire 77 group of religious leaders, and we're going to talk about this. 
So they get the entire Sanhedrin together in an impromptu meeting. And they have this meeting that that Caiaphas no doubt called. And they gathered and bribed the guards. Bribed them. We're going to give you some money. And we're going to give you money and this is what you're going to say. You tell the people that his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. Now that's a rather foolish story if you stop and think about it, right? So the guards were sleeping. They had no idea what was going on while they were sleeping. Not a clue in the world. But in their haste to come up with some sort of story, like, yeah, you, you tell people that you guys went to sleep and they stole them away. When in reality, that does not make for a very good story at all. And if this comes to the governor's ear, ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. You see, if the soldiers went to sleep on duty, it was a capital offense. They could be killed. So we have the Sanhedrin telling the soldiers, you tell them that you went to sleep and the disciples came and stole the body. And if you're going to get in trouble, we're going to cover for you. Don't worry about it. We got your back. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. So the guards did directly as as they were told. And the story truly has been told to this very day. I'm quite certain that many of you have probably heard the story. Unbelievers saying, well, the disciples stole the body had to have stolen the body. It's a very common explanation. But I do have one question. Where is the body? Right? If there was ever a manhunt or a body hunt that would exceed all other man or body hunts in the history of mankind, it's this one. The Jews wanted nothing more. This group in the Sanhedrin wanted nothing more to find this body and prove that he was a fake. Guess what? We got no evidence that they even looked. It's not even here. That brings me to the deeper part of this passage I want us to look, look at. They didn't even ask the guards any questions. They didn't cross-examine the guards about what they told them. The guards came and said, look, this angel came. I'm, I'm presuming they told them the true story because it's what the Bible says. And exactly how it happened, angel came, it was bright, we were scared to death and terrified, actually even passed out because of the fear. They didn't cross-examine them, they didn't give them any more questions or ask them any more questions. All of the evidence that we have in this passage points to the idea that the Sanhedrin believed the guards. 100% believed the guards whenever they told them the story. They didn't ask to go back out and look at the tomb. They didn't ask for any more information. They immediately tried to come up with an explanation or a lie. If someone comes up to me and tells me that a dead person came back to life, not only came back to life, but came out of the grave, I'm likely not to believe it. Let's just be honest. I'm not going to believe it. 
But the Sanhedrin believed these guards. They believed, they were convinced in what they were saying. Now, if I don't believe it and I reject it, that's one thing, right? If I don't believe something, then I am justified in rejecting it. But if I believe something and I reject it, then there's something else at play. If I believe that Christ rose from the dead, that the angel came from heaven and rolled back the stone so that everyone could see in, if I believe that and I reject it, there's something else going on. The Sanhedrin... They had listened to him preach. They had watched his teaching. They had watched Jesus' healings for three plus years. They knew him in and out. He was a thorn in their side. They witnessed his miracles. They even knew and understood what he taught about the resurrection and what was going to happen. And we have evidence of that back in verse 62 of Matthew 27. The next day, that is, after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate. So they went to Pilate, and they said, Sir, we remember how that imposter, being Jesus, said, while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead, and the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as secure as you can. So they understand what Jesus had been teaching, even to a greater degree than what the disciples did, because when he said This body will be destroyed, but in three days I will raise it up again. They didn't get it. They didn't understand. But here we have the chief priests and Pharisees and all the Sanhedrin. They understood it because they went to Pilate and they asked for a guard or a group of guards. He calls it a guard. It's a detachment to keep watch over the tomb so that they don't steal him away. They understood that. They did everything in their power to stop it from happening, and yet it happened. It happened. So here they are, faced with a situation where the guards explained to them what had happened, and they believed the guards. They believed the guards, and they accepted the explanation. Now, the situation is very unique because up until this point in time, it's a little vague on whether the religious leaders at the time believed and understood Jesus was who he said he was but at this moment in my mind I've got no doubt they truly know and understand that he is the son of God never any questions about the story they just want to make up a lie to protect as I said it's easy to reject something you don't believe but it becomes a whole different ball game to to reject something that you do believe in. The leaders and the guards, they had a choice to make. They could acknowledge that they had been wrong the entire time, confess their sin, repent of their sin, and accept Christ as their Savior, or they could continue to perpetuate a lie. 
That was their choice. And we know that's what they did. They doubled down on that lie and continued to defy God. My question for you this morning is, why would someone do that? Why would someone double down on something that they know is an absolute lie and defy God? One three-letter word. Sin. Sin. That's it. That's the only reason that you will accept and hold on to a lie that you know it's a lie, even though you believe something else. The Sanhedrin knew that if they give in, if they gave in, if they came forward, if they repented, if they acquiesced to Jesus and chose to follow him, they lose everything. They lose it all. They lose the prestige, the money, everything in society that they had. Everything that they cherished in this life, the sin that they so loved. That's gone. That's gone. So it was their desire to hold on to the money, the lavish lifestyle, the prestige that they had. It was that desire to hold on to those things that overcame what they knew in their hearts was the truth. It was the same way with a rich young ruler, right? He came to Jesus What have I got to do to be saved? Jesus said, keep the commandments. He said, I've kept them all. I'm good. Jesus said, well, I'll tell you what. Sell all you have and give give it to the poor. He's like, eh, sorry. Can't do that. His love of money, his love of sin was far greater than his desire to serve Christ. Sin has an alluring quality to it. Sin has an alluring quality to it that causes us to choose a life of sin over a life that honors God. And that's what's happening here. People will tell you that they believe the things of God. People will tell you that they believe in Jesus. They believe that he was resurrected from the dead. But yet they continue to love sin more than they love Him. And they're not saved. They're not saved any more than what these group of Sanhedrin leaders or these guards were. They will say this and they will tell you this because they've heard preachers say, all you got to do is believe, right? All you got to do, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, okay. So did the Sanhedrin. So did the guards. But they chose a life of sin. Verse 66. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone. I didn't get through the last one. Let's move on to James 2.19, the brother of Christ. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. It's a brother of Jesus making a wonderful point about this belief or this intellectual acquiescence or assent to truth. I believe that Jesus rose. Okay, that's fine. I believe in God. That's fine. 
The demons believe that. You do well, he says. But have you repented? Do you repent of your sin or do you so love it you want to try to hold on to the sin with one hand and hold on to the cross with the other and you're going to lose it all? All. You're going to lose it all. Following Christ is more than just an intellectual assent that he lived and died even that he was resurrected. So it's pretty clear in my mind that the Sanhedrin guards knew the truth. But it was because of their love for sin and their love of the things of the world that they refused to repent. They refused to acknowledge Christ as the Lord and Savior, their Lord and Savior. And the guards were no better, right? The guards knew the truth. They were there. And what did they do? They took the money. They took the money. The sinful greed within them was greater than their desire for God and for His glory. They chose to continue to perpetuate a lie. I'm quite certain the money was gone in a few weeks, right? Then what did they have? What did they have? Nothing but a lie and a hole and an empty place in their heart. Because that's what sin leads. As I said, it has an allure to it, but that allure is fleeting and leaves a gaping hole within it. Yeah, the Sanhedrin, they continued to have their, their glory and everything. Their, their, their financial well-being was great and their lavish lifestyle, they continued that. But that's fleeting as well. Beautiful passage from Mark, chapter 8. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Verse 36 says it all. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? That was a situation that was going on with the Sanhedrin and the guards. They were so consumed with who they were and what they had. They knew the truth, and yet they refused to repent. They chose the whole world and forfeited eternity. Verse 36 illustrates that trade-off so beautifully. Are you willing to trade eternity for the fleeting pleasures of the flesh in this life? That's the ultimate question. The Sanhedrin were. They were willing to do that. Does that terrify you? It should. It should. Because I'm getting older every day and I know just how fleeting life is. And I know how the treasures of this world fade and rot and rust and moths destroy them. And at the end of it all, you've got a body with a few pieces of clothing on it and a casket and that's it. 
Nothing else that you've wasted your life on matters anything to anybody. We don't know if we'll draw another breath or not. We're not guaranteed that. But I got good news. I've got good news. If we confess our sins and we repent from our sinfulness, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And when you decide to follow Jesus, it is that joy that is within your heart. It is that peace that Anna talked about that surpasses all understanding that says, no matter what happens, if they tell me tomorrow I'm dying in a week with cancer, it's okay. That's the peace that unbelievers don't understand because they're storing up for themselves treasures on earth and heaven is going to be empty and devoid of them. So as I close this morning, now is the time. Now is the time to make that choice. Is it going to continue to be, I'm storing up treasures on earth that moths and rust are going to destroy and I'm not going to take with me? Or am I going to choose Jesus? Invest in eternity. I'm going to repent from my sinfulness. I'm going to begin to make war on my sin instead of embracing that sin and saying, that's just who I am. That's the difference. And that's an important point. And those of you that are with me every week have heard me say this hundreds of times. If we believe and we are believers, we make war with the sin that is within us. We're not sinless. Sin every day. Hate it, despise it, I fight it, I try not to do it, I ask God to help me through it. That's how a believer deals with sin. Unbelievers say, that's okay. That's a part of me. That's different. That's different. Now is the time to follow the Father that created the universe and created you. The good news is he's waiting. The good news is he's there. There's a gospel message that is all about the good news. But before you can get to the good news, you have to understand that you need a Savior. And those guards and those Sanhedrin chief priests and leaders, they didn't need a savior because they had everything that they thought they needed here on earth. And when they died, that's all they had. So we have to come this realization that I'm not going to make it on my own. That as good as I think I am, when I'm faced with that perfectly holy God, I'm not going to make it. Because he's perfectly just. And what does he do whenever he's confronted with sin? What should he do? Destroy me, right? No matter what sin it may be, whether it's a small lie that I tell to help somebody or I've killed someone, it doesn't matter. It's sin. And a perfectly holy and just God must act in that manner and he is obliged to send me to hell. Unless. Someone else comes and pays that debt for me. 
That's the gospel message. That's the good news. That's why we're here this morning. Jesus came to pay that debt in full for me, for each one of you. If you repent, turn from your sin, fight your sin, and follow him. So let's bow our heads. If you don't know him this morning, it is this prayer that we are praying. Father God, Lord, we know that you are holy. We know that you require perfect submission. And Father, we acknowledge this morning that we can't do it. We acknowledge this morning, Lord, that sin has mired us down all of our lives. But Father, we also know that you provided a way. And that way is through your Son. That he came and he suffered and he died for each one of us on the cross. And Lord, it is with that belief and acknowledgement in our hearts and minds this morning that we repent of our sins, that we turn toward you, that we put aside the things of the world, the sin of the world that so easily entangles us. We pledge and vow to move forward with you to fight that sin every day of our lives. Father, we know and we understand and expect we're going to lose battles. We just pray, Father, that your spirit would always help us to know that we're going to win that war. And we thank you for the sacrifice, and we thank you that because Jesus rose again, we shall too. And having that beautiful thought in our hearts throughout our lives, Father, is priceless. It gives us that hope that surpasses all understanding. And Father, we know that your word tells us that if we ask you to forgive our sins that you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and we know that they are forgiven this morning lord as we ask for that forgiveness now father we pray that you help us to live a life that is glorifying unto you that is not for ourselves but selfless toward each other and toward you and your spirit we pray lord that you would help our lives be glorifying and reflections of who you are every day that we live, Father. For it is in Christ's precious name we pray. Amen.